you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Thank you. We're going to dedicate that one tonight to uh, a guy called Edward L. Walker who passed away. And uh, you all know of him, whether you know it or not, because he uh, invented the lava lamp. He died at age 82. Uh, There's lamp years tonight. But, um, no, the nice thing about him, uh, not only was he an avid nudist, but, um, till the day he died, apparently, but, um, there's a nice cycle of life in a lava lamp, you know, something uh, grows, it reaches, it breaks up, falls back to the bottom and then grows again. There's just something to keep in mind. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking Cameron in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast it is summer right dead in the middle of summer and hey now we're in august which means we are one month closer to getting actual shows starting in saint paul at the end of this month on the 31st and then obviously going to chicago then we go to india then we go to fort worth then we go to austin so we're going some places in about a month but before we get there we're going to make a pit stop and talk about a great summer show that actually happened in upstate New York. And this past weekend, as a matter of fact, my wife and I were looking at houses up in upstate New York. So it is perfect timing that we do this Saratoga spring show from the year 2000, the binaural tour, which I'm very excited to get to. It was at the Saratoga performing arts center, which is a pretty well-known outdoor venue. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but this is also a Patreon request from Matt Behan and Andrew Familair. And also we'll be hearing from our guys on the hallucinogenic recipe team. That'll talk about their very similar experience. So we got a lot to get to. It should be a fun one. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello. Hello. Hey, John. Did you know this little bit of trivia for you? What's that? The CEO of SPAC, Saratoga Performing Arts Center, for those that don't know, her name is Elizabeth Sobel. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Now, it's not spelled the same. I have an E okay. at the end. She has an O, 
But it's kind of one of those things where if I were to pass her on the street and kind of nod her way, she would nod back in respect. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe like a long time ago, there was a connection there. And then her branch of the family decided to change it to the O. There's kid who changed to the E and it was a thing. But yeah, it could be something there. Deep down in the lost annals of Poland somewhere. Yeah. We think. But anyway, Binaural Tour is great. And there's no lack of awesome shows. And I think that this is right up there with one of the better ones, of course. And it comes at a time where, yeah, it is a little tumultuous with the band. They are coming off of Roskilde still. That's always going to be a big storyline. But this happens to be the first show after the trio of Jones Beach shows that happened in the middle of this first leg run. And obviously, I think there's one thing that just stands out above the rest when you think about Jones Beach. It's very obvious as to what it is. It's the It's Okay tag off of Daughter. And that moment... I've always felt like that was kind of the way of breaking out of this sort of touring while grieving and dealing with it and kind of getting over it. It felt like that it's okay tag and the crowd singing back with them. It felt like they got over the hump by doing that. And now this is the first place that they are since being at Jones beach for three nights. So now it feels, and you'll see this and hear this throughout the whole show. It feels really loose, which I don't think we have gotten just yet on this binaural run. Yeah. I think the heavy hearts got a little bit lighter after that run. Cause you're doing three shows in one venue. They were there for three nights at least. And you get a chance to kind of catch your breath a little bit, get some stability. And that's what they needed at that time. And I think that little three show run at Jones beach was, yeah, it was really important to kind of turning the corner on that tour and kind of gave them a chance to, like I said, catch their breath and get some momentum for the second half. And this is another one of those kind of sneaky underrated shows that's always going to be overshadowed by that run, but it's a great show nonetheless. Yeah. Thanks to Matt and Andrew for requesting. Now, this is interesting to me because I think it's underrated. Yes. But I think a lot of people still talk about it, which takes the underrated status and makes it like a, a high underrated, like it's good. And everybody kind of knows about it. And what that leads me to believe, because I went and looked this up, I assumed that this was an eight man show, but it's not. Yeah. I also assumed that this version, I believe of grievance I thought that this was on the touring band 2000 DVD, which it's not, they don't have a song represented from this show. So for as good as it is, it's weird that it didn't get the same kind of attention that the fans gave it. Yeah. And you never know like what went into that. They can only pick some of them and they were going to pick some of the European ones too. And again, I think just overshadowed by the three headed monster that is Jones beach. And also, I think after that was another eight-man show. I believe they were in Mansfield to end August. And one of those shows, I want to say night two, is definitely an eight-man show. At least in my eyes, I see this as being very eight-man potential. So It's right there. Yeah, I'm sure it was in consideration for sure. It has to be. So let's talk a little bit about the venue. As I mentioned before, it's a pretty popular venue, well-known, one of those big summertime outdoor arenas, really known a lot for holding the jam bands. It's a popular place where fish will come and play. The largest attended performance in its history was in 1985. 
Grateful Dead amassed over 40,000 there. And that kind of led us back to limit its capacity after that to 25,000, seeing how Grateful Dead and all their travelers and the mess they make, and I'm sure, help that. But the one that really takes the crown here is Dave Matthews Band. Now, they ended up recording a live album here in 2000. And it's sort of, from my understanding, one of those destination spots to see them. Like, it would kind of be in the same way where people want to go see Pearl Jam and MSG or Pearl Jam in Seattle. From my understanding, Dave at SPAC is a huge deal. Okay. Yeah, I'm not in that subculture, so I, I was not familiar with that. But it does seem like a cool venue. I mean, we should say, too, like, we finally get a video of a show to talk about it like a few months. You get to see a little bit of the venue, the roof and everything. It looks like a cool place to see a show. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't been back there, you know? Yeah, never, and never it's, just, it's just weird because, like, they don't really do upstate New York too much anymore. They did... In 2003, Albany and Buffalo, but it usually when they are doing upstate, it, it's gonna be Buffalo. And even that feels like a once in a blue moon occasion since 2013, yeah. like the place that they're really gonna go to be the representative of the area would be Toronto, I suppose, which is, right. Right. you know, like not a far distance from Buffalo, but you gotta spend a day driving if you're up in Syracuse. That's like a good three hours at least. So, all right. Well, as we mentioned, it was a request from two patrons. Matt Behan punted on giving us a story, said he was too busy, and he was, which he went to the Loose Groove party in Brooklyn and got to meet Stone and Reagan Hagar. So very cool for him. He gets a pass on not giving us a story for this week. But we did get a story from our patron, Andrew Familaire, which is a very good one. I'm excited to tell this and talk about it afterwards. So here we go. The SPAC show in 2000 was my fourth show in five days, having seen the previous three consecutive Jones Beach shows to be followed by the Camden shows the following weekend. I went to college in the area, but it figures that my first ever SPAC show of any kind would be after I graduated. This was also the best seat that I ever had at a Pearl Jam show. Fifth row, directly in front of Mike. My favorite t-shirt at the time was a play on the famous Got Milk ad campaign. Jeez, that was everywhere in the late 90s. And now it's one of those time capsule things where nobody ever talks about it. That was everywhere for such a long time. But anyway, which he got at his local indie record store and it said Got Vinyl on it. My goal was to trade my shirt for a tambourine, so I made a sign that said, Hey Ed, my shirt for tambourine, and I planned on holding it up at some point after the main set. Sure enough, as porch ended, I held it up, and Ed walked right in front of it. He stopped to read it, laughed, and pointed at me as if to say, I got you. Alas, the second encore didn't exactly include tambourine songs, Soon forget Black, Yellow Ledbetter. When we get to that point in the show, yeah, we'll kind of talk about that, how it was different than the party atmosphere. But to his credit, he walked around the stage and looked for one anyway. He was gesturing to the crew, but no one had one. He said goodbye. Then the band just walked off. I immediately went to the front of the stage and talked to Sweeney, who I was chatting with before the show and knew about my plan. It was like, you know he owes me a tambourine, right? Give him the shirt and get me one, please. He was like, dude, Ed's already on the bus and gone. So no shirt, 
but I did get a copy of the set list. 23 years and 30 plus shows later, I no longer have the shirt or the set list that were both lost in a move and still don't have a tambourine. The end. Well, what's the moral of this story? Because I'm really, I'm not sure what to think of this. Like, he played all of his cards right. It just wasn't the right night. Like I said, this isn't. It's not a rock in the free world night. This wasn't the right night for it. Yeah. So, Andrew, we're hoping that in the future that you can get that close again and maybe get your wish this time. If you bring the shirt back, then perhaps. He doesn't have the shirt anymore, unfortunately. There's always a way. Look, there's going to be a shirt story in this show that I'm going to talk about. And I thought there wasn't going to be a way with this shirt. However, there absolutely is. So I bet you the words got vinyl, not too hard to print on a t-shirt. I bet you one is out there. If you wanted to get one, I think it's still worth a pretty good trade right there. All right. What we're going to do now is swing it on over to our hallucinogenic recipe podcast, guys. It's Brian and Patrick, and they actually recorded a new episode this past week. Should be coming out at some point in the future. Not too distant future, actually. And when I went on to kind of greet them when they were starting to record, I told them that I was listening to the show. And they both were sharing their experiences and going back and forth. And it turned out that they were essentially sitting right in the same section. So they both remember a specific story about a guy who was doing something really stupid. And that's why I'm going to throw it to them. They're going to retell that story and kind of get both sides of it. It was very funny. If you're there in the moment, it was, it was hilarious. And now they're going to go back and tell you guys about it. So take it away, guys. Hey, everybody. This is Patrick Bogle from Hallucinogenic Recipe, and I'm here with Brian Horowitz. Brian, how's it going? It's going great. What's going on? Oh, man, you know, ready to talk a little bit Saratoga 2000 and an experience that we both have found out that we had simultaneously sitting in the pavilion of the SPAC world. And that would be an individual during this absolutely thrashing show that decided he wanted to climb over rows of seats to get up front. So I was sitting roughly like eighth row center. Where were you about? We had second row, not in the orchestra pit seats, right? So the right. second row, kind of stone side. I took a couple of really good pictures. I'll send you at some point. But we were pretty up front there. And sounds like you and I were a couple of rows and a couple of seats away, but pretty close to each other. Yeah. So I'm guessing based on where you were, I might have encountered this person first, who was basically walking on top of the seat rows at the point where he encountered my area I want to say it was either right after rearview mirror, or maybe it was even like right in the thick of the jam part. And I know he was creating a commotion behind us. And finally, he got up to the seat and I was there with my wife, Michelle, and I basically ended up putting my fist in his chest. And I was like, you're going to have to find a different route, buddy. This is not happening right now. (laughs) And that was the last I saw of him. But it sounds like he made it down to your area. Yeah, we saw him twice. We had the pleasure of him doing that to us two times. So I was there with a few of my really good friends. We ended up with amazing seats there. And and to your point, I think you're right. At least one of the times I recall being in a jam because I remember just kind of like being into it and and like, what is happening right now? Why is someone tapping me in the back or knocking into me? And 
So the first time he goes through, and I don't even remember what happened to him. Again, we were like two rows from the little walkway, and then there was the orchestra pit. And so he might have gotten caught or thrown back there or, or whatever it was. I don't remember what happened the first time, but it happened again. And I remember same thing happening, look back and seeing this just freaking dweeb, like climbing over the seats, knocking into us. My friend Wendy standing next to me, she just starts laughing. She's like, seriously, dude, again? And I remember he just looked and he just goes, I will never forget his exact words. He goes, it is Pearl Jam, yes? Like, I think it was a French-Canadian accent. I I'm guessing he was from Canada. I'm not 100% sure. But two things, just the way he said it was hysterical. And then I remember just thinking like, yeah, I know it's Pearl Jam. It doesn't give you the right to just be an asshole. Like, what are you doing, dude? Get out yeah. of here. This is, and, I mean, and then we lost track of him. Yeah, we're, I mean, you're talking, we're at Saratoga 2000. We had long past the days of crowd surfing, at least very much so at U.S. shows. It was frowned upon, and everybody was more about stay in your areas, stay in your zone. And yeah, he was having a hard time keeping to his seat. He very much wanted to get up to that stage and stage dive face first onto the cement because no one was going to catch him. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try that at my next GA show. I'm going to just start tapping people on the shoulder. And when they try to give me shit, I'm going to go, it's Pearl Jam, yes? <laughs> That's a, that is an awesome idea. You can see if you can throw them off the trail. I'm on it. Next show. Next Saratoga show. Awesome. I mean... I definitely have to say about that one, as guys are going through it and covering it here, rearview mirror from that show, black from that show, oh, just absolutely black, killer. Black from that show is stellar, for sure. Yeah, the breaker fall opener, the light years speech about the lava lamp and the whole, yeah, there's some great stuff at that show. Yep, and the throwback to the torn up nasty t-shirt that he was wearing that was from the Lollapalooza tour. <laughs> yeah all good stuff <laughs> yep great show for sure and that was the start of my five show run the first time i really did like a run like that so it's a special one for me very cool yeah i did six on that one i did the three down in jones beach and saratoga was the last and i had done the early stage of that run down in charlotte and greensboro wish i had done more in hindsight but don't we all I did six total on the tour. So same thing like Saratoga. I did the Boston shows and the Camden shows. And then I did the one off Montreal in October. And you didn't bump into your French Canadian friend up in Montreal. So I should have done it like in, in American English. and like, it is Pearl Jam. Yes. And see if he responded to it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's it on our adventures in Saratoga. Keep an ear out. We got some stuff happening. Back to it, guys. All right, why don't we dig into the show? Now, for the gear guru's sake, Javier was on vacation this week, so what we're going to do is something a little bit differently. Now, at this point of recording, he hadn't got a chance to listen to the show yet, but he said he still wanted to contribute something when he got home from vacation. So we are going to figure out on the fly what some of the best moments to hand over to him are, and we'll see how it goes. We'll see where it goes with that. And it's going to be a little bit different this week. And some point in the future, he really wants to kind of be in the background live when we do it. So maybe we'll get that aspect too. Look, we're looking for all different creative ways to implement Javier in the show. So if this is one of them, then let it be so. But that's a good tee up to kind of get us into what's going to be a pretty hot start. Of course, they're going to open with the opener. They're not going to start with a release or sometimes or long road or anything like that. They are going right into break or fall. Mm -hmm. 
it is going to set the tone for these first six songs, which are absolutely back to back to back to back to back, all complete bangers. Ed, I think, is the highlight. Just sounds really loose, strumming all the way, hard strumming into it. Mike sounds amazing on this, and Stone actually has something going on too that I think you wanted to address. It sounded a little bit different, a little interesting. And I wonder if there is a reason for that, which we will invite Javier into that, but this is a really good version of Breaker Fall to kick off. Yeah, it is. And like again, two thousand is the perfect time to get Breaker Fall and like you're gonna open up a show with it. I think the two coming off of that three show where Jones Beach they just wanted to get right to it. Like let's not mess around, let's just tear this thing off right from the beginning. And like I said, too, the venue being very cool and very kind of welcoming, like, just go ahead and tear it up right from the beginning. But yeah, Stone, I think, I think maybe it was earlier this year, last year, I'd noticed this, that Stone was playing a Rickenbacker guitar during Breakerfall. And, you know, Rickenbacker guitars are known for being kind of jangly, like the birds from the 60s and R.E.M. from their 80s, that kind of jangly alternative sound that that gives. And I wonder if Javier would maybe talk about how that fits into their sound and why he would choose to do that. I have a feeling it's because, you know, he's trying to stand out, like, tonal-wise from what Ed and Mike are doing, just kind of sit in a different range, maybe. But I'd be interested to hear. It's an interesting choice for a song like that. Well... All you gotta do is text him and you shall receive. Hey Randy, hey John, hey everyone on the podcast. So we are covering Saratoga 2000. This tour is also one of my favorites. I think the tone, the tonality, it's a very unique tour when it comes to sound. It's a blend of a lot of things, a lot of like different brands being used. And this is like when they were really starting to stack a lot of different stuff just to create this very unique feature or sound. Something that I would like to talk to this week is Breakerfall, since Breakerfall is a song that it has been evolving over time. Now the version that we might hear nowadays, first of all, is Half Step Down, when on that tour, they were really going for the closest approach to the original version that they could get. In this case, I'm going to focus on Stone. Stone is using a Rickenbacker 12-string. This is going to be the 360 12-string Rickenbacker, not the Jet Glow. It's the black and white that he was using around that time. At first glance, the guitar seems that it's only a 6-string, but actually you have like the tuner knobs kind of like hitting in the back of the neck. So it is a 12-string, and that's going to add a lot of jangle to it. A really cool thing as well is the fact that for this version you can really hear the stone is really turning down the tone knob a little bit more my assumption it was being between four and five because the tone is not very present and it doesn't have a lot of treble or a lot of brightness which in a toe string instrument also semi-hollow instrument eh, that might cause a little bit of maybe feedback issues and that's something that you don't want to have in a live setting so yeah i thought that that was a pretty cool detail to know and that's how we're going to kick it off this week our wish has been granted, and thank you for the first one. We'll get back to you at least two more times throughout this episode. So, great version to kick you off. And then you're going into stuff that's not usually your first three or four songs here. I know that in 2000, it was more common to hear whipping and spin the black circle in the top. 
later on whipping would kind of be a mid set and earlier on it would be a mid set, but I've heard shows where it was like three or four spin the black circle seldom. Occasionally it was in the three spot and that's where both of them are fitting in here. Whipping at number two and spin the black circle at number three. A lot of vitality early on is never a bad thing. No, no, not at all. And I think that this whipping was easily one of the highlights here. Mike is just adding in flourishes almost everywhere in the show. Little mini solos, if you will, just injecting a new element of excitement for this. to say that this could be one of my favorite versions of whipping that i've heard in a very long time if not like top three all time this is an all-time version of whipping for me post 93 94 definitely that's one of the best i've heard in a long time but there's even a little lyric change too he says he said we already gave his i already gave which mm. i wonder like what the thought behind changing that to the singular was but yeah very good version coming out fast and curious spin a black circle following up on that the same way it's fast and furious as well and it's the freight train thought where when you get up from one you're about to get hit by another and it's kind of like you know a comedy act it's kind of like sideshow bob with rakes where he finally gets up steps on another rake and tries to get to go again and you know after nine times you're like all right what the hell but the tenth time is funny and I don't know, like after six times here, you kind of want like five or six more times to go on this too. But Spin the Black Circle just absolutely rips. And there's a part that I really like, and this might be a good talking point for Javier too, is that you can hear Stone, sounds like he's playing the chords almost like in a higher octave. I don't know if it's in a different key or not, but I don't know if I've ever heard him do that before. circle for me defines in your face when you look at the Pearl Jam catalog it's just a raw really really powerful song but again there's little details that we cannot analyze so if you hear the da 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 you play that part making octaves playing your guitar part in octaves meaning the same root note is going to be the same note in your case in your third string or in your fifth string so that's how you're going to create an octave in your guitar and that's how this song is being played every single time that i've heard this version you always hear both players doing the same thing jeff will make the same part in the back now there is a pretty cool thing about this version is that a stone makes the major chord shape in parts three and four 
of the course. Yes, he doesn't play the octave at all. So I think it's a pretty unique thing because it adds a little bit more harmony to it. I think it takes away a little bit of the rawness thing and it takes away kind of like that in your face. It's kind of like it gives a little extra layer so the players can do something different and maybe you're not going to repeating the same part over and over. Also, another, another really cool detail at the end, that use of a very classic Ivanis flanger that he was using around this time for this tour. That uh, Ivanis flanger was set on his board in between 1998 and 2000. It came back briefly on 2003, but then it was removed and it was replaced by something else. But another really cool thing that you can kind of analyze and maybe a song that you have heard so many different times, but at the same time, one little change can add a lot of difference into it. No one is playing the main riff for a little while and spin the black circle, which is a little weird. But yeah, it's a little bit of an edge to it. A little bit of a, a strange sound is, is unique. Yeah. Again, red hot start. It's all going to continue. The next three, hail, hail, corduroy in my tree. I thought hail, hail from a visual standpoint was really good because Ed is right at the mic and he's changing some lyrics like he did in whipping and again another sign that he's pretty loose when he's changing some of the lyrics like am i going to the same place why couldn't i come to put it into first person and that cool changes what's on his mind during that of course but his intensity and almost like his intensity during this is just like every time that he cocks back his head and he does one of those like extended and just kind of screams a little bit like that's how you know he's feeling it and he's shaking almost on every single lyric and every single verse it seems like it's getting a little bit more fierce and a little bit more intense and some of those screams in the middle right to get into the solo and everything like that like that is ed at its best when it's this song and this song just drives and punches and again just like the rest of them it's a huge gut punch to start yeah i really liked cameron on this too i thought especially at the end sounded really really good it was a standout for me corduroy and in my tree now you got some stuff on both of these songs i know that you always have stuff on in my tree i got something on in my tree but what about these two stood out to you yeah this show in particular i think in corduroy's the first kind of example of this is like a lot of times we come on here and you know we're interested to talk about the rare songs and we want to talk about what's unique about things but this show i think really the thing that stuck out to me was how good the kind of fan favorite songs were and like there's going to be a few of them in the main set for sure but corduroy is the first one where it just completely soars like one of the best quarters i've heard from this year that i remember mike takes a really extended solo just great energy all around it felt like they were putting everything together and really got to a good place on corduroy i was very impressed by this performance yeah i mean corduroy every single error is going to get you and especially at this point it felt like 96 got a little better than 95 98 got a little bit better than 96 and 2000 it just continues to excel as the years go by and even in 2003 onward this song just finds ways to keep being different and keep being better so yeah no i fully agree with you there now on in my tree i like this version of in my tree a lot and it's a faster more hard-hitting version i would say obviously that intro was just perfection on that but dare i say that this is a little bit more of a punkier version of in my tree that we're used to because usually it gets a little like jammy and spacey but this has a really good edge to it and it felt like if not punk then maybe punk adjacent on this 
maybe. I won't go that far, but I'll say it had a little bit more of the vitality energy to it, like a little more angst and a little more edge to it, like coming off of three out of the previous four songs for all of Vitalogy. So this, to me, sounds like kind of what in my tree would have benefited been on Vitalogy. And, like, you get Cameron doing a very good, I, I won't say Jack impression, because it's right there with what Jack was doing in, like, 96 and early in 98. I love what Cameron's doing. You're adding his own touch to it, but still kind of being faithful to the original, just a, an absolutely killer performance. say thank you very much nice to see you you all look great we recognize this place we've been here a long time ago we were older then but we're younger than that now it was 1992 opening for Soundgarden, and i was wearing this very same shirt now okay so this isn't the shirt story the shirt story comes in a couple of songs but i just want to address that but eight years later ed's got the same shirt night in night out like is that the least surprising thing to you? Maybe. Was that Lollapalooza in 92? Had to be, yeah. yeah. I mean, Soundgarden, yeah. that would make sense. Yeah, you're in a van, like, you just grab a bunch of t-shirts. Yeah, like, sure. And I, I think he meant his overshirt, not the t-shirt. Oh, okay. okay, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, the t-shirt we'll get into in a second. The t-shirt is specifically a 2000-era type thing. Okay, before we get into those... You got a soaring section here, which have three of the most notable soaring kind of songs. Dissident, Given a Fly, Nothing As It Seems. Mike's guitar definitely sounds a little different on Dissident, and we've heard this tone before, almost like using a whammy pedal effect or something like that. It doesn't sound like it's right on the note. It does sound like a little bit of a delay on it, just a little bit, but again, what Mike did in whipping kind of comes back here too at the end where Mike gets a little bit of a higher octave and starts to go off right as the last part of the chorus. And that just sounds excellent on this. Yeah. For me, it was given to fly. I think in the same vein as corduroy just absolutely soars has everything you want. Felt like the whole band was pushing the whole time. I'm going to bring up something with nothing as it seems that I don't think we've ever brought up before. Nothing as it seems might be, their closest thing, and I know you're going to roll your eyes at this because you don't like this band. <laughs> it might be their closest thing that they have to a Pink Floyd song. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because the delay effect pedals, the incorporation of acoustic, I hate to say that it's kind of mother sounding, but it is in a way because that's sort of the same juxtaposition of guitar usage 
in Mother that they're using in Nothing As It Seems as well. Like the two, it's it's in the same family. Downtrodden type songs that have absolutely blasts of solos. That's what Pink Floyd did. Like, yeah, it fits right in with Comfortably Numb and Wish You Were Here and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I don't think that's a super hot take. I think you're right there with that. Roger Waters was never somebody to overly embellish lyrics. At the time, he kept it very, like, straightforward. Ed, on most songs, he has moments, especially live. He can kind of take a lyric to almost the next stratosphere a little bit, but nothing as it seems has never been one where he's sort of extended his voice louder than it should have been. You know what I mean? Like, he keeps it very level on this. That's another thing that I think connects it to Pink Floyd. It's interesting, too, because that's like a Jeff song. Yeah. 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 I think it's everybody in the band that feels the influence there. Yeah, yeah. So... Not surprised at all, but interesting stuff. Now, do you want to talk about a t-shirt? Because it's time. You can talk about the t-shirt. <laughs> so what are you going to talk about? I have nothing on the shirt. Do you know the story of the shirt? I do not. All right. Well, the story is, Ed at the show is wearing a shirt that says Champagne Breakfast Club. However he got it, pretty good timing. Somebody might have given it to him on tour. Who knows? But... After seeing this and reading this on Five Horizons, the interest kind of sparked me here. And I went on to a thing you might have heard of before called Google. And I searched for Champagne Breakfast Club t-shirts. And after a little bit of digging, I ended up finding the same exact shirt that it is wearing here. I have no idea if like it's considered to be like somebody put it up as like, hey, this is a Pearl Jam shirt because it's it's literally the same thing, same colors and everything. Or this was just something that has just been in like a shirt rotation for 25 years or something. I have a feeling it's for like suburban moms who drink champagne for breakfast. I don't think probably it's related at all. Probably, but like I don't know, like that feels like a newer thing. That feels like a last like. Mm. 10, 15 no. years thing and not 2000. Like that was a, maybe a rich mom thing back in no, that like, like the late nineties. Like that's like an eighties thing. You're going way back. That's a, I don't know. It's been around for a while. I don't know. Well, you're also from the South. They do things differently in the South. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I got excited by it and I bought it. So <laughs> there, and guess what? I'm going to wear it to one of the shows. I don't know what show I'm going to wear it to yet, but I'm going to wear it to one of the shows because it's one of those things where it's not a band tee and people will frown upon the band tees. I don't care. You can wear a band t-shirt to a show that you're going to see them at. I, I don't care. That's not something that really concerns me, but it's one of those things where it's like a reference. If you get it, you get it kind of thing. So I think I will bring that out. Maybe even in Chicago, who knows, but great version of grievance here. Again, very intense. He does make a gesture to his shirt, which is pretty awesome. Right. When he does the line, really good moment but i think that light years is a pretty important talking point from this show because they seem to be really inspired during this version and i wonder why yeah i agree i think it's a little bit of ross killed still obviously but yeah this is a very very good version of light years i think the pink pop 2000 i still consider the kind of gold standard but 
Yeah, this one's right there. I felt like it could have been a dedication or something. There's definitely something going on. Well, I, I did him a little bit more in investigation here. And as Ed would say at the end of Light Years, that it was dedicated to somebody. And what I found out is that our good friend Edward L. Walker, who this is dedicated to, passed away. He is a close family friend thrice removed of Pete from Cornwall. I figured that out. The lava lamp inventor. I figured that out. So for anybody that was asking, close family friend thrice removed from Pete of Cornwall. True story. True story. You can find it everywhere. So yeah, I thought that Light Years just had that great balance to it. Had a perfect flow. And I, I think that Light Years is best when it doesn't overdo itself, when it gets a little bit too almost like it's trying to oversurge. I think that's where you kind of lose the identity of the song. You just kind of lose its composure on it a little bit. But this is balanced, and this is a tough song to have like a perfect version of sometimes. And it just balances perfectly and kind of gives you that comfort that you want from such a, an emotional track as we kind of mentioned. Walker here, of course, a great man of history. Ed's going to... Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know Pete from Cornwall. I don't know him from Adam. I guess that that's kind of the saying, but maybe he's a nudist too, and that's how the thrice-removed friendship oh, okay. kind of came in. I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Right. I'm just saying. Right. I'm just saying. Look, I'm putting like three and three together here. That's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm trying to say. So, Here's the story of Edward L. Walker. We kind of put it together already. He invented the lava lamp, and he died at 82, so he lived a full life of lava goodness, I suppose. And Ed would actually say, oh, that song is Lamp Years tonight, which, hey, dad joke before having any children. Respect. Yeah, this is but, before the Anchorman, I Love Lamp, that would have been. Yeah. 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 I mean, that joke would have came out. Had it been four years later, that joke probably would have came out. The nice thing about him, not only was he an avid nudist till the day he died, but there's a nice life cycle in a lava lamp. It grows, it breaks up, it falls back to the bottom and grows again. And that's something to just keep in mind. I don't know if he was like real with that or if he was just kind of like, hey, it's funny-ish that a nudist lava lamp inventor died, so I'm going to take it a little bit further. I don't know, but yeah, it's the most poetic anyone's ever been about a lava lamp since <laughs> like the seventies when people just get stoned and stare at them. Yeah. I, look, um, that was a complete bullshit fabrication. He's not 
any friend of Pete from Cornwall. Like I, I just, if you believe that, then here, take a bridge that I just built two seconds ago. But yeah, I think the thrice I, removed was the, <laughs> the tipping point on that one. I think it was Ed reading the newspaper and came upon the obituaries and got intrigued mostly by the nudist part that, Hey, he was the inventor of the law of the lamp, but he was also a nudist. So that's where a good version of light years kind of comes from. If it was the reason why light years was great in the show. So be it daughters up next. And this is the daughter version that is following up the most, maybe out of every single version of a song in Pearl Jam history, it is probably one of the top three greatest performances. And this is coming off the heels of that. And now you're kind of saying to yourself like, okay, we can't do it's okay every night. We can't replicate that, but it's kind of like, and we're in baseball trade season here. So it's on my mind. So it's okay kind of like being, I don't know if you want to say like, and I know he's not going to get traded or at this point that you listen to it, didn't get traded, but he's like show a Otani. If you're going to trade, you're going to trade for like three or four different tags here. So this was a definitely a tag festival at the end of this. Not to mention that it was also kind of an ominous way to dig down deep into the tag and start it. But I'm going to throw something out. The little vocal run that Ed does in the beginning sounds a little bit like it could have became on a rope, but it wasn't on a rope. Hmm, Okay, yeah, I didn't get that. But maybe that was the player to be named later, or cash considerations, who knows? But we have three legitimate tags here. One that you'll never hear in a Pearl Jam set again. It's a Velvet Underground song, Beginning to See the Light. And then you're going to have WMA, which is obviously WMA. And then at the end, you're going to get a little bit of the Androgynous Mind tag that we usually do get. But beginning to see the light, this is a cool one. It had only been done four times, but it does sound like he is channeling the best of Lou Reed in this. I thought that that was great. Yeah, and I think it fits kind of the theme that we talked about at the beginning about how they were turning the corner on this tour and some of the heavy hearts were kind of lifting and getting a little bit lighter and they were regrouping and seeing how they could continue on and kind of take that with them and what kind of band they would be. And like, you look at just the title song, Beginning to See the Light, like that's very appropriate for the theme of the show. I think it fits in very well. one we get a really rare tag and that's going to take us into the combination of lucan and mini fast car mfc ed's going to tee up lucan by saying this is about a guy named matt lucan who's in seattle now 99 percent of lucan we can talk about every single time we cover it and say what the fuck are these lyrics but now in this version 
we have a legitimate gripe to say what the fuck are these lyrics because it's completely different to start the song. pretty unintelligible but this is actually legitimately unintelligible because he doesn't do the same lyrics that he does in the beginning of Luke and then usual like the, the only lyric that was discernible was find my way but the rest of it at least in the beginning was completely different yeah I wonder if that's like we talked about you know Sonic Youth open the show Sonic Youth and Mud Honey have a friendship that goes way back I wonder if something specific about Lucan had come up or like if he was, he said back in Seattle, but maybe that he was thinking about a specific story or something they had talked about and then decided to kind of ad lib that into the song. But yeah, who knows? Well, it makes for a version of Lucan, whether it be a different version of Lucan or not, it is still Lucan. Now, MFC kind of pops up and it's a really fun version of MFC and this is pretty punky. And Stone's flourishes sound really excellent in this. And Stone is also kind of highlighted when you look at the video because you got to look at him and darkly lit arena with some lights kind of flashing at you here and again. But Stone is wearing sunglasses during this performance. So how does he manage that while playing in... You know, it's obviously they're outdoors, but it's nighttime, you know? He doesn't need to see the fretboard. He can play by muscle memory. He knows what he's doing. But, yeah, I just thought it's like the Corey Hart moment, like, future's so bright, wear my sunglasses at night. But it reminded me a lot of, like, what Stone would have looked like in, like, 1983. Yeah. Stone's sunglasses. And 2000, I guess, is an interesting fashion year for him. I know 96 is, like, the one. We got to see if you can find these sunglasses and pair them with the shirt. And then you can have like the full experience. A little bit trickier. But anyway, going back to taking the mic here. Three summers ago, I took an internship working with primates in Seattle. They can put words together using sign language and you can communicate with them. None of them knew how to play an instrument. And I wrote this one because even a monkey can play it. Now, Choose your words wisely, Ed, because right in the beginning, right during the first verse. can probably remember the lyrics better than Ed on this if they know how to put words together. When was the last time that we got a wish list that didn't have a screwed up lyric in it? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that Mansfield stands out, obviously, but for this to be the follow-up is fairly interesting in that retrospect. But yeah, look, it just felt like he was went blank on it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that does happen and can't fault him for it. But I think with the disco ball lights going off, illuminating the whole entire place, the sound of the song just sort of sounds almost romantic in a way. Like it does feel like sort of a love song in this version, especially at the end 
where he kind of does the reprise a little bit. I thought that that was really pretty what he did and gets a really good response. Like this is a very, very good version of Wishlist yep. that maybe gets overshadowed by his little, you know, monkey botch. I definitely agree. I mean, I love when they do kind of the radio song ending and then the big kind of like flourish at the end and bring it home. Yeah, it's really, really good. And yeah, it's too bad that it's going to be marred by the lyric fuck up. But he mentions the end too. He goes, oh, I guess even the apes have trouble sometimes. flowed really really well together wishlist and the better man we've been talking about transitions a lot the last couple weeks but i really like these two back to back and apparently the band did too because it has been done 27 times in the year 2000 they went back to it 14 times so pretty cool and i like how the band is thinking in that aspect and i think when you think of 2000 there are a lot of songs that were packaged together like that obviously Lucan and Not For You are, it's kind of the height of the duo. And also Habit and MFC got a lot of play back to back a little bit. But it does feel kind of like a 2000 thing that they would find songs to pair together. Yeah, that was still the era of like, Ed's gonna put on the guitar for some songs and then take the guitar off for some songs. So they're trying to make that a little more seamless so you would get these little runs of songs paired together and they would repeat them a lot throughout the tour. Yeah, that's a good call. And I, I love this as well. Yeah, Wishlist into Better Man is two songs that you don't usually think of as pairing well together, but it works really well here. Better Man's another one I think in the show that it, it's not like one of those epic versions that you would get later. It doesn't have a big save it for later. But all in all, just all around, just a well-played performance of the song. Very, very good. Yeah, I agree with that. I really like this Better Man too. There's no crowd pandering. There's no waiting for the crowd to take the mic from him. He's singing along with them, so it's kind of like a joint thing. And there's no tags. It's very straightforward and punchy, and I thought that Cameron really drove this song. And yeah, I, I like when Better Man can be that. I like when Better Man can just be straight up and be a four minute pop rock song. That's sometimes all you need from it. Even Flow into Insignificance, it's gonna be your penultimate little bit here. Now, most shows, I, I bring this up all the time whenever Even Flow is in a late part of the set or an odd part of the set, but it is still strange because the majority of the shows that you do, Even Flow is the basis of your beginning and then what you're going to do at the end. That's just sort of how the structure goes. And I think because of that, the mind sort of tells itself that a lot more happened in this show because Even Flow was in a weird spot. I feel that way with the St. Louis show, St. Louis from this past year. I felt like there were way more songs in the main set than there actually were because Even Flow was like the 13th or 14th song and it was closer to the end of the set. And now, this doesn't really work for this show because this is the 17th out of 19 songs. So you are getting a lot of songs, but it does feel kind of separated from some other sets because it's such a predictable thing that is almost a guarantee every night. 
you know, you had nothing as it seems right in the middle there and kind of the even flow spots that felt like this isn't going to be an even flow night, but then they bring it back after Better Man, which is another interesting transition going from Better Man to even flow. I don't know how many times they've done that, if ever. Barely. But yeah, even flow late like this, and again, the first 10 song of the night, we hadn't gotten any songs from 10 up to this point. Feels like we did a show recently that was like that as well. But yeah, like, when even flows late like this, you're being very crowd friendly and trying to get everyone going to the end of the set. It has actually been done Better Man into Even Flow 12 times throughout history. Combined, they've been played over 1,400 times. So that's. Wow. Yeah. That's something to think about right there. Yeah, the most coming in 2000. So this kind of kicked off the combination in 2000. This was the first one that happened in the year. And then they do it. Montreal, they do it in Auburn Hills, they do it at Shoreline, and they also do it in Boise and Seattle for the first night of the K-Arenas. So, hey, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. There's going to be another one that I look at later that I'm going to be interested in the back-to-back because we really don't get it. Bring Up Insignificance it was a very good version. The big rev up is excellent. It was Ed here getting a little noise experimental towards the end, which I really liked. Cameron really popped, and also I really enjoyed because even from the camera's perspective here, it looked like the whole stage went black and white throughout the whole entire song. And I thought that that was a really cool look. I don't know if that's something that they were doing the whole entire tour with Insignificance, but yeah, you saw black and white on stage the whole entire time. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, Insignificance here, it would easily get lost in between your better mans and even flows. But yeah, very good performance too. Kept the energy going. All right, eight minutes of a juicy rear view mirror here. I think the bridge is pretty unlike things that we've heard before. Now, everybody seems to be on a different path, but kind of be able to create the path and meet at the center. Stone is playing very clean, open notes. Ed is sawing away on the Ebo, and Ed's really, you mentioned Sonic Youth, and Ed is the one that's creating the Sonic Youth sound from this. And then Mike is kind of like the rhythm section for this almost and at the tail end he does like a riff that feels like almost a 70s song and i can't put it together like the way that he's playing it feels it's like legitimate but it's only like a couple of seconds worth of time and no follow-up to it but it kind of felt like it was out of left field because this was again a little bit more experimental but that was very interesting to me that all three were coming from all different perspectives. However, put it all together and got a full blend of such an example of what this song should be in a River Mirror Bridge. Well, speaking of shirts, you know, Mike was wearing his Queen shirts, maybe. He was. Channeling that a little bit. Yeah, I love River Mirrors like this when you just kind of add a little bit of that weirdness into it. And like, this felt very relaxed. And like, a lot of them, the tension really stays high. Like, they're very tense, they're very propulsive, right? With River Mirror. But this one felt like they really took their time. Like I said, eight minutes. The build is very, very good. And when it explodes, it even adds that much more to it. Yeah, I thought watching it almost was super cool. And I love the influence of Sonic on River Mirror. I love when they do this. I'm 
Yeah, the momentum and the drive all comes together. Big time ending. And the band is just challenging themselves. Just stretch as far as they can go, as fast as you can go. But I think that's like the big thing for me at the end of River Mirror is just how far they can take it. And this one, they took it really far and just an explosive ending to it. All right, we're at the Encore. Let's pause for station identification. We have some things to talk about and tell you guys. So first of all, let's thank a few new and old patrons here. Start off with the new, brand new patron this week, Andrew Pettit. And no, I know I mentioned baseball earlier. It's not Andy Pettit. I think we'd figure it out if it was Andy Pettit. That would be pretty cool. But it is Andrew Pettit, and he's still pretty cool. He got in touch with us about a couple days ago. So looking forward to doing his episode in the future, joining up on the Giggle Egg tier. So thank you so much, Andrew. Nice. And we also got back to the fold here, Brian Harwitz obviously that you heard before from hallucinogenic recipe took a little break from patreon now he's back thank you so much brian and also we are back with william wallace so you ready to go fight for victory here because william wallace is back on our side i feel like we're about to go into battle i was gonna work up the big speech but i didn't prepare anything but thanks to all those guys that's great to see some new people around for sure and some old people so thank you all so much Real quick with the Patreon stuff, just going to plug it like we do every week. If you want to support the show, support a little bit of what we're doing, help make it better, help grow the community, then what you're going to want to do is go to patreon.com slash live on four legs and go and donate. We have three different tiers. They all offer different things, all exciting things. The first tier for a dollar a month is the bonus leg tier. That's going to get you all of the great content that's over on Patreon. And yeah, summer's been a little bit slow over there, but like I mentioned, there's going to be hallucinogenic recipe coming up pretty soon. There's going to be a gear garage show with Javier, brand new show for him. It's going to be his first episode. We've been working on the pilot for that. So expect that probably some point in August. And then we'll be working on another evolution episode. We'll be working on Letterman 2006 as a part of our late night series that is probably going to last on forever. But There will still be content, and of course, out of everything that you should sign up for Patreon for, you should probably sign up for the post-show reviews that we do, and it's going to be really good this year, because last year, we did it kind of when we were on site, and we were at the shows, but this time, we're going to make sure that every single show, we have some representation on site that whoever's at the show that's going to talk to us, they're going to straight from the horse's mouth, tell us what happened and kind of give their instant reaction analysis on that. So really excited to do that. Obviously when I'm in Chicago and Fort worth, I'll be able to grab some people and we'll all do it together. And it should be a really, really fun experience. And that's like the future of what these post-show reviews will be like. And this is going to be really popular again this year. So if you want to join up again, bonus leg tier, there is a free trial under the bonus leg tier for seven days. So if you want it in on that, you can join up on that. But also if you want to request a show, then you're going to want to join the gig leg tier for $5 a month. If you also want to request a show for $10 a month on the horizon leg tier, you can do that. And you will also get a profile on our website and a profile episode created about your Pearl Jam fandom. So lots of great things. Patreon.com slash Live and Four Legs or go to the Patreon app and search for Live and Four Legs or go to liveandfourlegs.com 
and click the become a patron button. Now, speaking of live on fourlegs.com, this is kind of all pulled into it. We'll kind of get into that in a second. So, John, we put together this whole karaoke thing and it took a while to develop. We were trying to find places for it. You know, obviously from the karaoke last year, we wanted to follow up on that pretty big, but I guess I didn't realize how popular it would be because we put it on sale last Tuesday. We put it on sale around two o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern time. It was a hundred tickets and it all sold out before midnight. Really exciting. And after that, I, I got in touch with the bar. I'm like, Hey, we got our crew here. We're able to get a little more. And they said, absolutely. We extended it to 32 and a day or two later, we were able to fill that up as well. So karaoke is sold out. You guys, I would love to make it a thousand person event if I could, but then be the rules of the bar and the max capacity that you're allowed in there is 132. So that's where we're standing in right now. However, if anybody wants to be put on a wait list, there will be people that probably can't make it the last minute. I know that I'll have an extra ticket. I might be saving it for somebody right now, but there are a couple extra that might be floating around. So Please make sure you get in touch live on for legs podcast at gmail.com or just message me on wherever you can find me, which is pretty much everywhere. And we'll find a way to put you on the wait list. And hopefully we can get everybody that wants to be in into the event. That's our hope, but it's going to be really tough. You guys are lucky. I'm not going to be there because you'd all be going for second place. Well, it's not a competition, John. <laughs> We're just doing this because it's fun, you know? Yeah, no, it'll, it'll be great. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. I don't, I don't get to go. It's going to be fun. I've done karaoke many times, but I've actually never done Pearl Jam karaoke. So it'll be fun. I'm eager to hear how it goes. Look, there are going to be a lot of things happening in Chicago on the off day. If you go to liveonfourlegs.com, I posted about it. And I also posted about the raffle that we're doing on the karaoke night because each ticket that was sold at karaoke got you two raffle tickets into the raffle that we're doing. So we are giving away three prizes and we're selling the raffle through our website, which again, go on live and It should be right at the top and you can buy tickets right from the site and we'll be giving away three items. One of them is something big. I got, one of the best independent artists from the sports community to create a neon blue and red Cubs colored Eddie Vedder neon sign that is the pose of him jumping over the stage at Wrigley. I got him to create that for us. So that's going to be a main prize for the raffle in there. And I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about that. It looks fucking cool. And the other two prizes donated from Aaron Redman. We are going to have a Monk One from Wrigley 2013, which everybody affectionately knows as the hot dog poster. We're going to have that. And as another prize, Kevin O'Rourke, who has been working tirelessly to help this and to help our fundraiser for, and this is what it's all going to, our fundraiser for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which is all going in dedication of Sean Sullivan here. 
And he donated his four-piece Home Away Show wine set, which is pretty expensive at this point, pretty rare to find. So if you want to pitch in and help our cause and you want to buy some raffle tickets, head on over to the website and you can do so. I believe for $20, you can buy 10 tickets. So that's pretty worth it. So hopefully we can make a lot of money and send it over to Cystic Fibrosis and hopefully we can help them and help push them find a cure at some point the Pearl Jam community, we just want to help out and we want to do right by our own. So yeah, really excited for this only a month away, but time is ticking here. So it really feels like, yeah, it's going to come real, real quick. Now for anybody that purchased a shirt, shirts, if not have already been shipped, they will all be out by the end of the week. I can promise you that. One last thing before we end the encore section, keep in mind our five-year anniversary is happening very soon. If you want to contribute, write something to us or send us a recording about what you love about the show or what some of your favorite moments were in our history, just send it on over to us and we'll throw it into the episode and we'll put it together as part of our celebration. So I'll throw that out there live before let's podcast at gmail.com. If you want to participate in that. All right, back to the rock. Ed comes out here. Thanks everybody for coming out and mentions the one lane of traffic that was coming in. He says, it's great. It's humbling when you have one lane of traffic. We'll be playing a lot of songs still. It's a quiet one to start the second half of this show. Sleight of hand goes into do the evolution that goes into once. Now, what I like about encore sets sometimes is that you can come out there and just be like, all right, well, what's next? Kind of like the Katowice theory of like, what's in mind, you guys? What do you guys feel like playing next? Oh, the, well, the let's play this. Yeah. Right. And this Encore One is right in that wheelhouse because you never really get a do the evolution after sleight of hand. We're going to have Timeless Melody thrown in here, too. And Leatherman's going to go into porch. So it's all sort of out the window. And it kind of comes together in a way, but it, the main set feels like it really gelled together so perfectly. But then this is like, we don't know what we're doing, but we'll find our way to get out of it, I suppose. Yeah, a little bit jumbled. Yeah, I think sleight of hand was added to this. It makes sense with, I think they were supposed to come out and start with evolution, continuing kind of the theme of just going for it right out of the break, keeping up with review mirror, but someone had handwritten sleight of hand. So they definitely did talk about it backstage during the break and be like, okay, we're going to call an audible here and add this in. So, but yeah, I love sleight of hand here again, like haven't really gotten this kind of song in the set so far, but I think it fits really well. Like sleight of hand, especially coming off an encore is very, very good. Yeah. I like this kind of version of sleight of hand too, where you can really kind of feel every moment from it. It's really kind of plotting, but also still has a little bit of that surge. And this is an, necessarily a rare rare song from binaural like maybe parting ways is this gets played like once or twice a tour sneaky 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 throwing it in there but now they use that surge and they really start to rev up and kind of gets a little bit faster a little bit edgier but in the beginning the early stages of playing this it definitely has that jammy sort of relaxed vibe to it and mike's effects are really overall just everything's going down smooth the tone was really smooth in this version 
Yeah, great. And it's like Nothing Man was scheduled after Leatherman, so they sacrificed Nothing Man for sleight of hand, it looks like. Okay. Hey, you know what? They didn't have the trio in there anyway. They didn't have the trilogy, so might as well. Now, another shirt story here. We're on our third shirt story. Cameron said that the shirt that he was wearing was the same shirt that he wore back in 1992 as well. So it's evolution. It's a slow process, but evolution once stone is on fire for evolution. I thought stone sounded really good. Yeah. Pretty average version of once just takes you right. Exactly where you expect wants to take you. But like, I feel like maybe these could have been before porch in most sets, but they kind of just decide to place them here. Yeah, it's kind of a build and then a stop, and then you're going backwards and going forwards again. It's a little bit jumbled up. Once here was strange, didn't do anything for me. I thought it had a little oomph behind it. Ed was really emotive at the end of it, chanting once, but yeah, it didn't do much for me either. So I'd much rather talk about Timeless Melody. Ed says to the crowd, I think he says it every time they play the song in 2000. He says, you probably never heard it before because it wasn't recorded by us. It was recorded by the Laws. Then I guess there's a pause. Apparently somebody doesn't have a guitar because he says it requires one. So Timeless Melody is going to get you into small town, which is a weirdly a strange transition. I don't know how to put that together, but Leatherman is going to follow up on those two and be your penultimate before Porch. Now, yes, heart of the 2000 tour. It's where they're playing Timeless Melody a lot. And it got played nine times out of the ten in total that it's been played. And it's kind of a little bit on our minds a little more because last year the Earthlings went on tour and brought this back, which was really cool. I think it's one of those we talk about a lot, like with Fortunate Son and Let My Love Open the Door in 1995, that it's a cover that just stays primarily in that era and is almost never brought back again. And in, and for Pearl Jam, yes, that's the case. But I love this song. I think the song is so catchy. It has like a very just classy pop rock feel to it. And I think a lot of people are on the same wavelength here because a lot of people would love to hear it back. I know that for a fact. It's just one that it just sort of feels like it's kind of a time capsule thing. I know this is one of your favorites. Every time it comes up, you kind of gush about it. And I've come to realize, I like to, you know, the Laws were known more for There She Goes. Like, you know, There right. She Goes, that was their kind of hit, and they got covered and went on to be this huge hit. Wasn't the story like Cameron turned him onto it, I think? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, on the European yeah, tour. And I always think of it as sounding like a last kiss or a soldier of love kind of thing, but it's not that. It's definitely like that more kind of 80s alternative 
like you said, kind of jangly, pop rock style, which they do very well. I think it would have fit more with Leatherman. Like, it has that more kind of feel to it. But I really like this as well. I wish they had given it a more featured spot, like come out in Encore 2 and really give it a featured spot in the set. Like, yeah, it's, it's a great cover. Yeah, I would like to see it. And maybe it could have been one of these songs where it's just like once a tour, every two or three years it comes back. I would much rather hear it than anything from Pink Floyd, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's a very folky version of Small Town here. It's weird not to hear the crowd singing back and forth, especially at the end. So it kind of allows you to really hear the acoustic guitar go off and soar into the distance and stand out, which was really cool. And then Leatherman was just a really bouncy performance too. Like maybe the crowd sort of saw this as one of the rarities of the night and maybe getting excited about like seeing this really late, but Leatherman was an odd sandwiched here, but pretty fun performance. Yeah. I thought Leatherman was really good and small town felt really like uplifting and triumphant a little bit. Like they were really going for that kind of vibe on it. Sometimes it has that kind of folkier vibe and sometimes it can be a little Springsteen-y. But this one felt like just kind of pure and like kind of honest, like just a straight up. We're in the moment on this thing. Again, small town, you look at this like it doesn't really fit. Like, again, what's what's it doing in between Timeless Melody and Leatherman? But sure, you're throwing darts at the board, so go for it. Makes your crowd happy. The crowd was happy. Yeah. Doesn't matter what two dudes 23 years later think, right? Because we're not there. Matters a little bit, but (laughs) not not as much. Well... I say that because I'm going to rip on porch a little bit here. Uh, This is not the type of porch version that I find very interesting. When Mike is just used as like the singular highlight of porch, I think it takes something away from the song and something away from, I guess, the connection of the song. That's the part of the song that you love the most is that the band starts to surge and really elevate all together and find different spots where everybody can kind of shine. And in this one, it was just sort of everybody gave it to Mike and said, all right, Mike, you got a voodoo child solo a little bit. You got a little something else in the solo. Like there was no buildup. There was no excitement to it. When Mike finished, the chords to get back in got back in. There was no, hey, hey, there was none of that. So this, and it's rare that I say this, but in terms of versions of Porch, this is below average for me. Um, I will say that it didn't grab my attention like Rearview Mirror did, like Evenflow did, like Light Years did, like Corroy and Matri early on did. I'll give you that. But I still think it's a cool moment. You get Ed going out into the crowd on the bouncer there, singing out in the crowd like he would 2013, kind of shades of that, uh, which I think is, is a cool moment. But yeah, I, Porch was not a highlight for me. Like I said, didn't grab me like it sometimes does. All right, dig into Encore 2. It's going to be a really fun version to soon forget. So let's dig into that. This is the one I've been waiting for. <laughs> I knew it was coming. So we get sort of like a little pre-ukulele jam on this, and he's just kind of almost like a tune-up getting warmed up with it. Sounds cool. It's kind of, you know, very Hawaiian-y, and then he punts on it. He's like, nope, not going to do that. I should say this is not the plugged-in sit-down ukulele that he would come to play. This is like a pure, like old-school, tiny acoustic ukulele he's having to hold up to the microphone and everything. Right, yeah. So it's tricky for him in this version. I think that's going to kind of tee up what we're about to talk about. 
Now, he says that the ukulele was something that he didn't have in 1992, another throwback to him talking about last time that they were there, and says there's a little song about corporate welfare on the new record, and that's where this gets in. And you can hear before the song begins that Ed is shushing everybody. He's like, come on, like, give me the room to work with here. And then midway through, this is what happens. That's one more time the sun is going down, the moon is up, but he's drunk and shattered, putting people down, he's stiffening, when you sing a man else and forget. You're all count clapping off beat. Nice to have the support, but you like the support to be in you know, on time. Okay, this is the uh, took it up where we left off. Counts of money every morning. The only thing that keeps him morning. Locked in a giant house. So the upstate New York crowd, I guess, doesn't have any rhythm. They can't clap to the beat. They were not the only ones. This happened a few times. Yeah, no, I, I I know, but like it's only the 15th performance, but this must be like the height of the frustration here that Ed is really trying to make this kind of a big part of the show and he still kind of maybe is a little underconfident with it. Yeah, I can see that. You know, ukulele is not something that he was probably proficient in at that point. He was still picking it up, but... Yeah, I knew there were versions where he stopped it and, like, made the crowd stop clapping. And when this got to the, oh, here we go, this is one of these. And there are a few scattered around, but this is one of the main ones that I remember where he, like, you guys have to stop clapping because you're messing me up. Yeah, it's hilarious. (laughs) Look, they get their act together. They clap for the rest of the duration. And because of that. Sorry, but, like, why keep clapping after he says, don't they just don't do it? (laughs) Why would they? Ah, uh, don't yeah, it's hilarious. Well, don't be dissing on upstate people. Look, I'll, I'll diss on anybody else in the country, but I'm about to move up there, so I don't want people to find where I'm about to move to and destroy it or something like that. So it's not the upstate people; it's all the people that drove in from elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. It's all those people. I don't know. <laughs> I think I can honestly say this might be my favorite version of the song because honestly, like. You don't need a perfect version of the song to say, wow, that was good. You just need a fun version of the song to say that. After that moment, after the crowd sort of figures out how to clap, it is fun and it's smooth sailing. Like he doesn't do the stiffening and forget that line or anything like that. He nails it at the end. So I liked it. The moment kind of gave it some weight here and and made it fun. But I thought that after that, he felt real confident with it. So yeah, I dug it. Big moment in the show here. A lot to talk about as we end the set. It's going to be black into yellow Leadbetter. Statheads, if you want to hear about this, black into yellow Leadbetter has been played back to back in the set twice. Once was this show. The other was in Prague of 2000. So 
This is one of the rarest combinations for the end of the set that you can think about. However, I fucking love it. Oh, yeah. I love these two back to back. For some reason, I think it's like the richness of the sound that makes it feel like the two songs can kind of mesh so well together, especially in black, the way that they finish the song, like the soft plane landing. I always mention that plane landing and the way that that finishes up and sort of, I guess, in the same vein, Yellow Leadbetter is kind of like a takeoff. And you got to remember here, Alive is off the table. This is middle of the 2000 tour. There's no Alive. You need other songs to kind of supplant it. Like Porch was already used. They decided not to go with Rockin' the Free World or Baba at this show. No Leaving Here, which that would be another one in the spot. They decide that the end of this set, they're going to go more an emotional route. I just love this. I just loved every bit of it. It's interesting too because Black was not the original choice for this on the set list, Soldier of Love. Interesting. Which would be a very different kind of ending to the show. I mean, Andrew might have gotten his tambourine if they had busted out Soldier of Love. You're ending on a very different spot. But I wonder why they 86 that and chose to go with Black instead. Like you said, more of the emotional, heavy kind of song at the end. And we had talked about, I think last week too, about what songs should step up and be in that bread and butter spot. I don't remember anyone saying black because it is kind of like on the fringes of that sometimes you'll see black into alive a lot but i think i would love to hear black as like the penultimate song throw it in on court two every time i think it really adds something to the show and adds a lot of just half gives it an anchor there at the end for everybody to kind of go oh yeah that was an amazing performance because this is another fantastic version of Black, too. Mike just, like I said, brings it in with a little flamenco, kind of reminiscent of the bridge school versions there. At the end is very, very well done. It's a nice way to end the show. You know, Soon Forget is always a little hit or miss, but like you said, a fun version. The crowd gets into it, and then you got Black and a Yellow Leadbetter, which is going to send everybody home. It's just classic. Yeah, here's a thought about why the switch could have happened. I saw that at the end of the video, the ending time was 10.55. So I'm wondering if they were going through the math in their head when they're backstage trying to figure out the second encore and they're saying, look, Soldier of Love is two and a half minutes tops. So we have six, seven minutes to work with. Why don't we just add black here? And it seemed to work out perfectly. Yeah, could be. So I'm going to throw this to Javier because we had Javier on for two earlier. 
Let's get one more from him to see what he thinks about this combination. Maybe he could talk a little bit about Zeppelin too, because all that goes on here is fantastic. At the beginning of this version of Black, you can hear the mic is rolling down the volume a little bit, but the tone knob of is strapped. A stone has such a great groove going on that it's kind of like if you do something else, you're going to be in the way. Let Stone do his thing, and I think Mike noticed that, and he was trying to be a little bit more gentle on his playing. There's a pretty cool uni vibe going in the back, so that is a huge shout out to Jimi Hendrix in the way that that version is being executed. The solo is like, holy shit, it's just insane, it has a lot of soul to it, it has the magic combo that we all like. Ivan is to a screamer, TS9 or TS808, whatever he was using around that time. I'm pretty sure that 99% it was a TS9. Plus that Dunlop Wah pedal, Q35 or 535Q, whatever you can find it. Awesome fills my mat too. There's a lot of mat in the song as well. But yeah, it adds so much towards the end. And I think that intensity of that ending of the song it's gonna play so well with the next song because you have like kind of like this power block that is one after the other right so black ends in the key of e major and yellow let better it starts in the key of e major like the shape that you do like arpeggio and all those things but i think it it's just moves so well it's kind of like you have this intensity you have this kind of like sadness because of what the song entitles to but then you hear kind of like that a hope after what you heard at the end. Cool detail that a stone is playing all along and not just waiting to the first chorus as the version that we know nowadays. Again, just like so much groove into it. Favorite part of the song by far is the end. That's when we just basically open our jaws and we just enjoy whatever we have left of the show. But having this little snippet of Let's Zeppelin's Nobody's Fault But Mine, that's insane. That is a little treat for everybody. I think they went digging down to like the deepest influence that they might have. Well, Stone is a huge Jimmy Page fan, but everybody knows Mike more for Steve Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, or Cheap Trick. But insane detail, I thought that it was like the perfect ending for a perfect block of two amazing songs. All right, Javier, ending the show for us. Thank you so much. Hope you had a good vacation, buddy. All the family up in Wisconsin. So, all right, now let's talk about top three moments. John, take it away. Yeah, this is tough because I've got four that I want to use. So I think I'm going to fudge a little bit like you have been known to do from time to time. I'm going to combine a couple in just a minute here. I'm going to go review mirror number three. Light years number two, and I'm gonna go with the corduroy in my tree combos as a whole. You said that that's something that I do. Well, that, you, that you've been known to do. I've been known to do. So, something that I've been known to do is actually going to be something that I'm going to do right now. I haven't done it in a long time, I don't think, but I am going to do it in just a second. Number three, whipping. Love this version of whipping. I think you needed some representation from the first six. I love Hail Hail too. I love Spin a Black Circle too, and Breaker Falls pretty damn good. But I think out of those, it's whipping. I'm not going to use my combo card just yet. Number two is going to be Light Years. Excellent version of Light Years. Dedication to the Lava Lamp guy. Great. Nudist for everybody. Number one is going to be Black into Yellow Leadbetter because it's just such a surprising and special moment that you would get it. They're two 
huge fan favorite songs. It's going to be the last moments that you recognize from what is known to be a really good night. If you were there for the first 19 and felt all those songs happen, you're like, okay, this is something that we're going to talk about for a very long time. And for those two to end this, to me, that's all that makes a show memorable from that standpoint, especially because you never, ever get that combo ever again. So I'm all on board Black Ledbetter being the best moment of this show, which is crazy because the way that you started came in like a lion and sort of went out like a lamb a little bit. And it did not finish the same way that you would have thought this show being. It kind of changed identity somewhere in the middle, which I thought really worked for it. So yeah, Black and Ledbetter, number one. All right, let's rate this, baby. I really enjoyed this. It hit all the right spots with the fan favorite songs. Encore one, we talked about is maybe not perfect, but it ends very strongly. I'm going to go eight and a half on this one. I'm not right there. I'm a little higher than that. I'm going to go nine on this. I thought the beginning was really strong. I thought River Mirror was really strong. The ending of the show, obviously, as just mentioned. There are a lot of fantastic performances from the show. I think you said the songs that were the fan favorites sort of made this show stand out. And I think that's a perfect assessment of it. And then it was sort of the ones like it wasn't that heavy of a hit show. It didn't feel that way. At least the hits were sort of spread out a little bit and less like in your face hit moments. But yeah, I really dug this. I think this is one of the better ones, obviously, from the first half of this 2000 run. Yeah, this is a nine for me. Excellent show. All right. Next week, as we've been talking about a whole hell of a lot, we're going back to Chicago because we're soon going to Chicago and we got to celebrate that whole thing. So we are going to do a 2009 show from Chicago. Now I was at the night two show from this and we're going to do night one And the night two show happened to be my second show that I ever went to. It also happens to be the third podcast episode that we had ever done. But I think I will kind of go over some of the same stories that I told from that episode for all of you that I'm sure remember it, which is none of you. And it will also have stories from Andy Lore, who requested this one. So we'll get to hear from him. So Chicago. Getting some representation a couple weeks before we're headed there to hopefully see two magnificent and legendary shows always happening in the Windy City. So, all right. Thank you all for tuning in. If you liked what you heard and you're not subscribed to the show, make sure you are subscribed. Spotify, Apple, those are two really popular places to do it, I suppose. And they both have systems where you can rate the podcast and i always say rate it what you feel like but i always say feels like we do deserve the five star rating so look it's all up to you but i think that we've done enough we worked hard enough after 240 some odd episodes that that we have earned it but on apple you can also leave us a comment and let the next person know what they can get from this show, what you like about this show, what you've gotten going back to old episodes and hearing shows that you've went to in the past and reliving that because that's the thing about concerts. You have the official bootleg and everything like that. You can relive them as much as humanly possible, but you know, there are stories, there are things to go back on that 
you might not remember sort of about the time, sort of about the era. There's history to talk about. So if the next person figures out that we've covered or can cover a show that is really important to them, then that is important to us. And we would love for people to know that their stories can be told. And for that, we ask you for the help and appreciate all of it. So with that being said, Let's close this one on out. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Now, I guess because there are less people that tune in to the end of the show, I will say that, yes, it was the upstate New Yorker's fault. I don't have an address yet, but please don't destroy my house. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.